Hi, I'm Todd Lippi, the editor of Asopus. Every fall, we release a limited edition artwork, and I'm really excited about this year's offering, which will be sent to our premium subscribers in early November. The edition is the result of a multidisciplinary collaboration between musician Charles Bissell and contemporary artist Beth Campbell. Both happen to be previous contributors to Asopus. In fact, Beth opened our very first issue with a drawing from her ongoing series, My Potential Future Based on Present Circumstances, which consists of elegant flowcharts mapping out a dizzyingly wide range of outcomes resulting from a particular choice she's made. Charles, of acclaimed indie band The Wrens, was interviewed along with bandmate Greg Whalen in Asopus 3 about the intense, often torturous process behind the making of the Wrens' landmark 2003 album, The Meadowlands. One of the best-reviewed records of that decade, it included tracks such as This Boy is Exhausted. Charles is currently putting the finishing touches on the Wren's long-awaited and much-anticipated new album, which will finally be released next year. For the Asopus Limited Edition, he offered us a longer, unique version of one of its tracks, Three Types of Reading Ambiguity, a transcendent, heartbreaking exploration of the reckoning with mortality that accompanies middle age. In the edition, that track takes up one side of a custom-designed audio cassette, whose side B features a fascinating sonic interpretation of the song created by Beth, whose sculptures and installations frequently explore notions of copies and duplication. The edition also includes an exquisite new 17 by 30 inch potential future drawing from Beth related to the song and her participation in the project, as well as a fold-out poster featuring Charles's lyrics reproduced in their original format. This podcast offers a glimpse into the process behind the creation of this remarkable edition, Let's get started with the chat I had earlier this week with Charles about the origins of three types of Reading Ambiguity. The song goes back uh, to at least 2010. And that one, I think, I sort of remember working on a year or two before that, which (laughs) is just head-melting, mind-numbing, whatever. And um, that, I kind of just started that song... It's funny because at one point Beth had asked, like, oh, is it is that standard that the that the chord progression doesn't change in, in one of our early emails? And uh, the answer for me is no, not usually. Usually I have just I have so many chords, like Debussy is like, hey, you know, take it down a notch. Um, but this one it was just sort of created as like a, a not a loop, because I did actually play it, but a melody that was sort of originally sort of based on Van Morrison, which I've done more than once, which I kind of forgot about. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's actually a them song, you know, his band before. Right, 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 right. Because I was really listening to that record when I wrote that song two-thirds of a decade ago. So you said you wrote the melodies first. Is that generally how you approach writing a song? 
for me, it's always it's always melodies first, which is good and bad, because I don't know. In a weird way, I actually prioritize the lyrics more than anything. Even though I spend such an inordinate amount of time trying to get like the mixing stuff and coming up with musical parts, until you get like words going, that's like that's when the Frankensteinian bolt hits the <laughs> hits the cadaver and it brings the light. For me, I can give up on it at any time. But once the bad part is for me, once I put words on that I'm sort of committed to, right. then one way or another. <laughs> this song's got to be made to live. And I can actually remember, I can remember the one line, there's, there's one thing or another, but neither is good. And I can't remember if that's in the final version. Or in the, well, it's in, definitely in the version that's on the Sophos thing. Yes. It might be in the middle part that's cut. And I, I think it's in the middle verse, yeah. 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 And I just remember that. I remember... I just had no idea what I was going to write about, both in this song sense and in the album. Uh-huh. And you know, there was a general... And maybe you and I spoke about it, but there's a general sense that uh, it would sort of be about the demise of our parents. Uh-huh. And... Um, which each of us within the band had lost a parent within a month of each other, right after the Metal Ends was done, which is wow. statistically odd. But, um, and so maybe when I was working on that, this 2008 or nine, I remember running, going for a run down Kent through Williamsburg there and running past where they park all the trash trucks kind of right by the Navy Yard. And I came up with that line. I was like, great, there's a line. Now it's that. <laughs> now, now I've got to do it. Because I wanted at that point, I thought the whole record was going to sort of be about my mom and her getting sick and all that. But so much time went by that by the end, uh, I mean, you know how these things are—that sort of like your, your life moves on, and that you know you go through those phases of grief and all that kind of stuff. And that wasn't—it just didn't feel right. It wasn't as uh, pressing or something. Yeah, it didn't feel as sincere to suddenly make this whole record about that so it's still in there and in this song actually in particular it's still in there but it's not it's not the overarching thing anymore talk about the title a little bit the title as the song appears on the final record i'm still not sure what the title will be but for a long time and the title we're going with now it was uh it's been called three types of writing ambiguity when i was scrapping around for lyrics or even just for topics like what i was going to really write about and it was still a little more like um mom parental centric i started filling in words and stuff and i wasn't really sure where it was going to go but I had, it was more closely following what, what my mom's like last year or two was, where she went from living in Reading, Pennsylvania, to, to moving out west with my nephew and uh, to with my brother in California and in Northern California. 
And uh, the last time I saw her, we were at Christmas, and so I ended up taking a bus on New Year's Eve that w- that had to detour because of a mudslide out through Redding, California, which is spelled differently. Oh, wow. And then a little while after that, I was on tour with this band, uh, good friends of mine, Ockerville River, and I was kind of playing guitar. This was right before my first son was born, so I had like a month to justify being outside. And um, we were... We were actually not at the Reading Festival, which is how I wrote the lyrics, because at that point I was grasping at these sort of <laughs> straws. We were at Sasquatch, which is in outside of Seattle. It's in Washington State. And in on that trip, I learned that my mom's brother, my Uncle Kevin, had just uh, had died while I was actually probably playing on stage with him. But, um, so I rewrote it as the Reading Festival, but then I cut out the middle verses and I ditched the Redding, California part. And the song went in a different direction, yet I hung on to the title, all of which is a stupid, pointless pun or some pun. It's not even a pun. It's just whatever. To that seven types of ambiguity. Um, William Empson. That kind of new criticism book from the, I don't know, 40s, maybe? Yeah, I think even 30s, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so all, all sort of pointless, and yet at the end, it sort of fits here as yet there's another type of ambiguity. Right. Beth kind of re, you know, redoes the whole uh, does the whole song. So. Yeah. Last summer, Charles sent me an email letting me know he was in the process of finishing up the new Renz album. He told me he'd started to think about creating some sort of art installation related to the process of making the album. More specifically, he was interested in exploring how the original and the copy play much different roles in music than they do in the visual arts. I had a bunch of friends that were artists over you know, the last 10 or 15 years and was always struck if they worked in physical media that you'd have to document it, you know, document this piece with like photos or video if they were lucky enough to sell it. Like they put in all this work and then the actual physical original was gone because that's what has, you know, has value as <laughs> an aura. You know, it's a, it's a singular piece. Yeah. They were left with documentation and you know, shabby copies. Whereas in music, it's all shabby copies. Right. You know, because I sit here at the desk with the original, all the stuff, and then eventually, like Play-Doh, I extrude out one copy and I ship that off to the record company and then they they harden that in like an easy-bake oven and they make copies of that from there. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's a whole world of copies, but the original basically always sits here. Yeah. And to the extent that this record became about time and how you choose to spend it and how it all ends the same for us and the choices you make along the way and and how those cut off other choices you may have made and how that's also similar to like Beth's drawing series the uh potential futures potential futures and um in that that's sort of what the record became about and how our own parents mortality and then our own mortality you know fits in and all that kind of stuff the notion that I was coming down here at, every night at the sacrifice of a lot of things building you know, building a studio, getting speakers, choosing other stuff, making these decisions, making version after version of these songs. Like, what I end up with is this thing on my computer that kind of is the original, and it's um, it's from there that I'll spit out one copy. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Beth a couple times. Um, yeah. you, you brought her up in our conversations and said you think she might be interested in being involved in some way because obviously she's done a lot of work related to copies and duplication and you know obviously more thematically uh, related to 
choices and how the choices one makes in one's life can dramatically alter the landscape of your existence. So how did you how did you come across Beth and, and why did you think of her for this? I saw a piece of hers for the first time, I guess around 2000, and it was um, at this gallery, Roebling Hall, which was in Williamsburg at the time. And it was this piece called House, and you kind of walked in the gallery space and there, you know, typical huge, you know, gallery space. And within that was built a room with studs and sheetrock, and you kind of peek in the door, and there's a bed and a, a dresser and whatnot. And and then you kind of walk around the back of it, and there's another room. And you're like, oh, it's, oh, it's bed, and oh, it's also, it's kind of the same. And then you kind of go back and you look, and you're like, oh, wait a second. It's exactly the same. <laughs> and then you double-check yourself, and you run around. And the way they were placed, you run around like a... Like a rat. Yeah, like a little rat. And at some point in the process, you just kind of know that you have been made to run around right. like a rat by a, by a master rat keeper. <laughs> and and you try to, I'm sure the process is the same, and she and I have talked about it since, but uh, at about like the third the third or fourth look, you're like, oh, I will, I will catch her. Like I will find the inconsistency. So you pick something that you think is some small minutia that she couldn't possibly have duplicated in the two rooms, like the trash in the trash can. Then you go and you look in the other room, and there in the trash can are the same pieces of paper, actual paper, crumbled the same way, the same whatever is hanging out of them. You look at the wrinkles on the mattress, and you run around, and sure enough, the wrinkles are exactly the same. And it was a real, that was a mind-bender. Yeah. yeah. That's one of my favorite pieces I saw, and I saw a lot of work in that um Period. I was hitting a lot of. <laughs> I was child free and hitting a lot more galleries. <laughs> um, and it stuck with me. And I sort of would, you know, uh, I'd seen her stuff here and there. Then over um, the intervening years. So when I reached out to you, then I was like, you know, I had this idea. Do you think? Because I didn't know her. I'd never. I think I met her once. But what? Do you think she'd have any interest in a? In possibly rendering some sort of copy of this, this being the record, the studio, if all that is the original, um, the notion that the first copy of that would not be the digital, the little digital <laughs> extruded Play-Doh of the record itself, but that the first copy would actually be an analog copy in wood and speakers and whatever she wanted to do, something along those lines. Uh, I really love. So I was like, oh, do you think she'd have any interest? Do you know her? <laughs> and I, I remember you thinking it was a great idea, but I don't, you know, we were kind of like, oh, I don't know if she'd really be into this. And so I just wrote her and uh, she couldn't have been nicer. And <laughs> very surprisingly, here we are. Over the winter, Beth and Charles had had some discussions about creating an installation based on this original idea. And we'd even contacted several institutions and a gallerist about mounting the show. But time passed, and everyone became overwhelmed with other work and pressing deadlines. Several months ago, I started to think about commissioning the fall limited edition artwork. It occurred to me that a collaboration between Charles and Beth could make for something amazing, and the three of us got together to discuss possibilities. After quite a bit of back and forth, it was decided that Beth, despite a limited knowledge of music and virtually no experience with digital recording, would attempt to copy one song from the upcoming Renz album using the original audio files on Charles's computer. Beth chose three types of Reading ambiguity, and over the course of a month, she and Charles exchanged emails and phone calls. 
not to mention files, notes, and reflections. By the middle of September, using only materials found in her studio or apartment, ranging from oil drums to her own mobile sculptures, Beth had managed to create a copy of the first segment of the song. I paid a visit to her studio on a Sunday morning in mid-September to hear her nearly finished rough version and to learn more about the makeshift instruments she'd used in her creative process. Wait, what's this now? The Whispers? Yeah, oh, The Whispers. In here, the you know, it's not a recording studio, and it's so big, and there's so much noise. So I did this. <laughs> your your head is in a cardboard box, and you're... <laughs> but this is the coffee can, like... And you're singing into a coffee can. Let's hear it. You want me to sing? Can you hear her? Yeah. Okay, so this is the this is your version of the rhythm guitar. guitar. This is a what is this like a restaurant rack? I guess so. I have it to when I've done ceramic stuff to dry. Mm -hmm. And then you're playing it, you're strumming it, quote unquote, with a, a rubber mixed olives lid, lid. <laughs> from the That's deli. <laughs> Oh, nice. It's great because it actually, it's like strings. Yeah. You've got six strings, basically. Very or nice. Funny. So you, re you recorded the vocals in... Well, the third line of vocals uh -huh. in the bathroom. Okay, this is the women's bathroom the in your Navy Yard studio. Hello. Oh. It's good. Serious acoustics. And you sang, you waited until everybody left to start singing? Yeah, until you could hear it around 7 o'clock Friday night. <laughs> Nobody was here. <laughs> and I put my computer here and I'm sang saying. for a long time. Tried to sing. Let's hear it. No. <laughs> no way. <laughs> like I'm overdubbing, he overdubbed like crazy. And in terms of like the singing, it seemed, I like the idea that there's like this army of me, especially with the whispers. Like I only have like five right now, but I'd like to have a lot yeah. more. Which is a lot of my, like my work, too, the multiples and all this stuff. But, like, in regards to the potential future drawings, it's, like, the more that I would write, the more freedom I would have. Right. Because, like, you could hide really intimate details in it. I started uh, focusing on the music first, and then the lyrics were the last part that I was just obsessed mm -hmm. with. And I love how there... It starts with the house and ends with the house, the right. empty house, and right. I know it's just like it's just such a great short story, and I, I feel, it's funny because he and I are, at, you know, similar parts of our lives. Right, you're young kids. Yeah, and, and I feel a real strong sense now, of mortality that I hadn't, you know, I remember when I was like twenty seven. My older brother was saying, like, he warned me about how, you know, at some point you're going to... It's like a, you're it's like like a ghost. And it's so, it's so crazily true. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole thing started when Charles approached you right. and said, let's do this, this installation or let's try to do a, a show with the actual studio and you 
shopping parts of the studio, and then mm -hmm. I, probably, hopefully, that'll still happen. Right. Um, but I mean, the copy and the duplicate has played such an important role in your work right. and perception of things. And so, did it appeal to you the minute you heard the sole uh, proposal from from Charles? Did it seem like something you really wanted to the, into? of his space? Yeah. 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 Totally. First, well, my first thought was just like, how would I do it? And whenever I've done these multiple installations, like I'm building the spaces simultaneously, so mm -hmm. I'm like getting. 11 of one thing or two of one right. thing or something. So then that would require either you just go out and buy the same thing or find it or fabricate it or something or, or else then make it in a weird way, right. which is kind of more like what this has been. Right. So I don't know. I still don't know what that would be. But then when we met and we started talking about it too, I feel like I've we were talking at great length about doubling or duplicating and, and then copying and and I was trying, I feel like I'm slowly starting to understand <laughs> what he means by it versus what I, uh -huh. what I've come to, you know, because for him, you know, all this time and energy is like going into this one thing that then has exact copies made. Right. And this, the, that, like, that's the original, like his yeah. studio is the original of the, right. of the whole album. The yeah, yeah, it's like the space the, and everything yeah. and the history and him and... The books the that he read and, and the kids. Yeah, yeah. And the, yeah. Which is what the drawing hopefully will mm -hmm. manifest. I mean, you're copying the song, right? Right. But you're not you're not trying to make a perfect duplicate because then what's the point? It's right. like the Borges, the yeah. short story, right? Like, why? That is something I talked endlessly with my husband about. Borges? No, about no, the... like, I'm like, why, why wouldn't I just actually learn how to actually play it? He's like, well, that's not that interesting. <laughs> so what's the takeaway from this whole experience, do you think? I really, I have to say that I really admire the time that he has taken mm. on this. Because, mm -hmm. like, I feel everything that's in the world and everything about art careers and art world, and <laughs> it's all about, like, fast, turn it yeah. over, have a team, next, people next, work on next. it. Yeah. And I, I feel like being able to get this close to it and him and, like, having that be, like, a really beautiful lesson... Beth devoted the rest of the weekend to finishing her track. Then that Monday, she and I headed over to Charles's studio in the basement of his house in Brooklyn. Charles, who was thrilled with Beth's version, had offered to do a final sound mix on the song and field any questions Beth had before both tracks were sent off to the cassette manufacturer. Now I'm I'm just the engineer for hire now. You gotta, oh jeez. What do you so then with what's here? What do you want to What do you want to do? Oh jeez. Well, there's and a it big. It sounds cool as is in the headphones and. I can give you a quick Do you take want to out hear on it what, again? what mastering sounds like on the speakers. Well, there's two questions. There's two two things that are in there that weren't yesterday that I'm like, because I kept, it's like when I'm set out on an objective, I really want to try to do it. And yeah. it's like some things were thrown in. So I did put in what's the lead guitar, just the first four notes that are repeated a few times. Okay. That as a piano. Oh, that wasn't there yesterday. So that I was like, is that dumb? I just did that this morning. So that's just a question of like, is that even necessary? Is it just nice? See that, that little bit of piano? That's just like the beginning. Nuance. And then there's like, what I'm calling the acoustic guitar that comes in towards the end 
And that you heard I it, it was a really bad version of... It's spliced together poison and Guns N' Roses. Roses? Oh, so you did do that. Oh, yeah. I thought you were saying... It's a tutorial. Right. <laughs> it's like a chord tutorial on YouTube, but of those two. Every rose has its thorn and... Oh, you Sweet took the audio from the yeah. YouTube? <laughs> <laughs> but I spliced it together and it sound, it's like the rhythm of your right. guitar. It's only in there as one measure, or one eighth measure. What's the language of this? What do I call that? One, one measure? Well, where it's eight measures, it's like a, a chunk. It's yeah, a thing. One, I, it's a thing that's eight. Phrase. <laughs> yeah. Phrase. Is that one, it? Usually one time around is all I say. Okay. That's one time it takes to go the chord progression. One, one right. progression. Yeah, one, one progression. progression. Uh, and I only put one in because it just seemed like you got it. It's there because we were saying, I was like, oh, it'd be, I want to have it there conceptually because I just right. like that that. Right. Is what it is. Then I was struggling with, like, does this seem like I'm trying to make a song, or does it actually seem like it's an art piece or something? Yeah, but yeah. I think it's... I think it's kind of a nice combo. Yeah, I mean, it already is standing alone as its own. Like, if I just heard this, I would just think this was your song. I put my son's in there. Did you hear him? I did. I was looking for him. Oh. He's in there as just noise, or just because he walked in the room. But yeah. then he's in there purposefully where I was like, say mommy. Which kids are in yours, Charles? Um, in this song, uh, I, I don't remember. I mean, I generally sort of cut them out and then I pick, like that, I picked and choose to where I want them in. It's in the other song that there's a baby crying right in the Oh, baby. right, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Palestra. Uh, uh. Yeah. And then there's a different baby that's crying on the way out. So that's Henry as a baby when I tracked the original demo in the office in the old house. He's on like the, actually on this mic, I did the computer mic with the guitar. Mm -hmm. So that's him. I saved just that one little portion. So that's him crying on the way in, and then Martin was a baby when I was doing the lead vocals a year ago. He's sitting on my knee in the living room upstairs. He's like, bah, 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 bah. Wah! <laughs> oh, wow, you were recording your vocals with him on your lap. Yeah, because we had a babysitter. I can still remember, I had a babysitter that morning. She had to leave, and I knew I was close. I knew I was done, and that right. the stupid harmonies were really involved and whatever. There's some bad... Never feel bad. There's some bad singing, and I'm supposed to be a musician. <laughs> You're not hearing all the bad shit. I'm just sending you, like, let me send you this boiled-down version of perfection. Right. Meanwhile, there's, like, reams of hard drive space just devoted to, like, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 fuck. <laughs> Lots of this noise. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow. Um, there's that. Right. The song up through the through the end of the first half, and then there would normally be that connector, and then there's the outro. Do you are you? And then you were talking about having me do that middle thing. Should we not bother? Should we just end here? Yeah. I like how mine ends. Me too. Because it's like the clicking on the computer and it's yeah. like weird feedback or not not feedback but weird. Yeah, the the production noise. Sounds. Yeah. <laughs> I generally I go through my own song. There's I have so many of this sound. 
<laughs> you know, that's how, a million. I like ick. it. <laughs> Three Types of Reading Ambiguity is currently in production and will be sent to our premium subscribers in early November. To find out more about the edition or to learn how to subscribe, visit www.esopus.org or send us an email at info at I'm Todd Lippi. Thanks for listening.